can I just, I think it's really important for us to remind each other why we do this. Why we get up on a Sunday um, earlier than we want to, uh, forego all the yard work you guys want to do right now, wait to go to brunch if you even go at all. Why do we come and gather as a community on Sunday? And I'm just going to throw it out there. Why do we do this? Community. Great. Why else? There's no bad, well, there could be bad answers, but um, I just want us like, to like, talk about it. Like, why do we do this? Learning. Learning, okay. A reminder. reminder? Shared worship. Shared worship, yeah. See family. See family, okay. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi, Bob. <laughs> why else do we do <laughs> How was your trip? Was it good? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. We can have this time together. <laughs> Love it. To respect God and to worship God. Okay. Dig it. Any other thoughts? Not, I'm not fishing for the right answer. I'm just giving us space. Because we're called to. Yeah. Some of an obedience factor in all this. Yeah. Very cool. Yes, Silas. To be in community. Love it. Yeah, this is, this is a moment for us to gather um, with each other, that community piece, to worship. Something that happens to us in the process is it changes, it refocuses, sometimes it challenges us where we are in our moment right now. And we all show up here with different stuff. We all show up here with different hurts and heartaches and wounds and fears and doubts. And you walk in that door, it doesn't mean that you have it all together and you have it all figured out. What is the beeping that's happening right now? Is it the teapot? I'm going to throw that thing through. Um, I sometimes get sound distracted. Sorry, I was in the middle of something really important. And it's me. <laughs> I have a thing, but we all walk in these, and you don't walk in these doors. Uh, sometimes we, actually, Angela and I were talking about this today. Sometimes we feel like we walk into this space, and we have to, we just assume that everybody's just believes the same thing, and, and is at the same place in life, and has all the different boxes checked. And that's just not true. And that's part of the journey of walking with God. And sometimes the journey of walking with God feels like wandering and doubt and desert. Sometimes it feels like joy and celebration and overflowing. But it's not the case for all of us at the same time. So you, by you being here, what that does is that gives you an opportunity to come alongside each other. Okay? And so this morning, we are jumping back into Romans. Now, if you've been with us for a bit, we started a little series on the book of Romans, actually the letter to the Roman house churches. We started it back in February. And it has been kind of a, a really enjoyable season for me. I have avoided the letter to the Romans for a number of years. Um, and there's another... Uh, book and scripture that I've avoided for a number of years that we're going to get to this fall. 
And you guys are like, what's that? Habakkuk. I'm just kidding. It's not. Um, but, but I have avoided that one too um, for different reasons. Um, there are parts in the scriptures that are hard and difficult. Romans has been used in the past to be this like heavy theological doctrine, you're in or you're out kind of belief structure. Yeah. That has been very used in, in a lot of ways throughout history. And we started at the end of the letter, if you would remember that. And the reason why we started at the end of the letter, but it turns out that chapter 16 in the letter is actually, we get a lot of context for why Paul wrote the letter. And you are free to go back and catch up on where we've been. But when it started at the end, we starting at the end, we learned about who Paul was. We talked about who Rome, what Rome was all about. We talked about what these little five little house churches were. Literally like five little house churches of maybe 30 people that Paul wrote this letter to. And I just want to make the point that he did not write this letter to you. Okay? Like, I want to just be real clear on this one. And you're like, but, but he did. But no, he didn't, actually. Context-wise, Paul literally wrote this letter to five house churches in Rome. He delivered it by way of a lady named Phoebe who stood up and not just read the letter, but performed the letter and answered questions about the letter. She kind of helped them interpret what Paul was trying to say to them. We don't know if she did it to all the house churches. They just got together and had a little potluck like we did last week. And we don't know how it happened, but we know what happened. Now, Paul didn't write the letter in thinking, you know, one day, 2,000 years from now, people are going to really just chew on this and go through it and dissect it. And I can, I can pretty much guarantee that's not what he was thinking. But here we are with it. What can we learn from it? Paul talks about empire. He talks about Rome. He talks about the power dynamics that are happening within these house churches. I mean, there were people that felt like they were pretty special in the house churches, and people felt like they were kind of excluded. There was division. And he wrote this letter because his goal was to go from Rome. He was going to travel to Rome, hang out with them, and then they were going to send him off to Spain to take the gospel to Spain. Now, he wanted to make sure that what he was landing into was a group of people that were more unified than he had heard they were. He wanted to land in a situation and, and kind of preempt his landing in that situation with encouragement. He talks about men and women. He talks about being slave or free. He talks about being Jew or Gentile. And, and he talks about how they have... Uh, the responsibility to make sure they're not tracking in things from the empire into their community. Meaning how they treat each other, how they see each other. He tells them that they're family, that they're brothers and sisters. And that that's how they should treat each other. They shouldn't treat each other with 
like some sort of a, I do this and you give me this in return, some reciprocity, which is how Roman structure worked. So today we're going to look at this passage in Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to be honest with you, this passage in Romans 9 is actually a really, uh, it's a difficult It's a difficult piece of scripture because it's historically and widely been used um, as a main text that defends something called predetermination. Meaning, this text is often interpreted as meaning that God will universally, like an arbitrarily and unilaterally determine who he's going to have mercy on and who he's not going to have mercy on. It's like a really heavy passage. In other words, some people believe that Romans 9 tells us that God has predetermined the fate of every individual person. So this is where we get, in church history, the doctrine of election. Um, These are heavy words that you probably haven't heard, or maybe if you have, you've you don't want to talk about (laughs) predestination, middle knowledge, Calvinism, Arminianism, hard determinism, open theism, something called process theology, super nerdy stuff that I had to spend a lot of time in. (laughs) And um, I will save you the details of all the isms. But today, here's what I'm going to argue I'm going to try and make the case that Romans chapter 9 through 11, which are really dense passages, they're not about personal salvation. They're not. It's about Israel and people who are not Israel. Now, I'll get into this, but... The, the, the role, what Paul is doing in this passage is he's talking about two cultural ethnic groups and how they are playing out in these house churches. So if we were to just parachute into Romans chapter 9, we would probably be like, what's going on? It sounds like Paul's telling us that God's for some people and against some people. And that's not what he's saying. And that's why we've intentionally approached Romans as a letter, because that's what it is. It's actually a letter. And context means everything. So we hold every passage we're going to look at in context, the social context, the economic context, the cultural context, the ethnic context of the house churches in Rome. Does that make sense? So you remember there were two factions. We're going to have a little more recap. Two factions. The first one is called the weak. And I think we have a slide for this. I'm not sure. We may not. By the way, Trent is sick. He leads worship if you didn't know that. He's the guy that looks like me, but we're not related. He was really sick this morning, and he does a lot of our techie stuff. So the weak, yes, there's one of the factions in the group. Paul uses two terminologies. He says one is the weak, and he doesn't mean that they're weak, meaning they can't you know, lift weights. He means that they're weak in the sense that they're, they feel like they are the weaker group of people in the church. These are the Jewish disciples who lack the social power. We'll get into that here in a second. 
they judged people who weren't Jews, Jewish for not following Torah, which was the Jewish law, and they boasted of their privilege and status as true Israelites. So they were the minority in the church, and they felt pretty special because they were Jewish and they, they had this privilege and status, but um, they felt like their voice wasn't being heard. The strong were some of the Jews, but actually mostly non-Jews, who boasted of their standing in Roman society. So they're in the middle of Rome, and these are the people that have connections in the city. They have maybe some status, maybe they're patrons in the city, meaning they have a whole bunch of people that they serve below them in the, uh, I guess you would call it like a, like a pyramid scheme, so to speak. That's how Rome was set up. It was a giant pyramid scheme, and everybody fit in the pyramid. And so these were people who had status in the Roman society. Uh, they were free from the law of Moses, and they felt like that was good. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to do um, the food laws. And then they considered the Jewish practices exclusionary. They, they, they were like, why do you do that? Why, why are you excluding us because we're not Jewish. And so those are the two groups that Paul's writing to in these churches. And we can't take this out of context uh, because typically, mostly throughout human history, scripture was read out loud in community. It's only been really in the last hundred years or so that many people have their own copies of scripture. In fact, our way of reading, we talk about this in really in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, like in the last 50 years, the, the, the church has said, in order to follow Jesus, you have to read your Bible by yourself. <laughs> and interpret your Bible by yourself because God's writing the Bible to you personally. That's just not true. Paul uh, is writing this to a community. And so you know the old cliche, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We, as individuals, we read ourselves into the text. And that's how we're conditioned to read the Bible. Like, what's in this for me today? But to do that is to ignore a huge bit of context. And it can be really dangerous to map our own perspectives onto the Bible. So what is this actually talking about, Romans chapter 9? When we start in chapter 8, really quick, Paul is, this this is like magnum opus. Like chapter 8 in Romans is like, if that's all we had from Paul, it would be amazing. He says, for I'm convinced, and he goes, he goes on this whole thing, and his, this is his final bit, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future or any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is beautiful, and a lot of us stop reading there. We stop reading there. You know why? Because it's the end of the chapter. But there's no chapters in the letter that Paul sent the Roman house churches. What comes next? I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish 
in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Who was Paul's own race? The Jews, who were the weak, right? He's like, I wish, he's like, I wish, and this word is anathema, I wish I was uh, cursed and cut off if they could only get it. Remember, the church in Rome started with Jewish believers. Started with Jewish believers. They were the majority. Do you remember what happened, though? This goes back to a little history. Do you remember what happened to the Jewish people in Rome at around 49? Do you remember this? They were expelled, right? We talked about this uh, a few months ago. They were kicked out of Jerusalem. So you got this little house church. It's mostly Jewish Christians. All the Jews in Rome get kicked out. Claudius kicks them out. Because they were a disruption. Five years later, Nero lets them back, but taxes them heavily. Okay? You can come back, but you got to pay us more money. They come back. And now the church, after the last five years, grew up to be mostly what? The strong. The Gentiles. And so now they're like, the Jewish people are like, wait a second, we got kind of written out. We got kind of pushed to the side. We kind of feel like the minority now. And they had questions and fears, and it created tension. And they were, Paul, Paul asks in, the, in the th- these two, three chapters, 9 through 11, if you want to read this, uh, we're actually talking about this also next week, but over, the, over these three chapters, Paul asks, I counted, 30 questions. 30 plus questions. And it's his way of doing this kind of teaching that the Jewish people would be used to. It's called midrash, which is a way of questioning, throwing out some hypothetical questions, getting them to think and wonder. Um, He wasn't giving them all the answers. He was asking questions to get them to think. And it was this style of of teaching. And he says this, has God's word failed? That's one of the questions. Has God's word failed? And some of them probably felt like maybe it had. Is God unjust? Has God been unfaithful to the covenant of Israel? Has God hardened Israel? Did God reject Israel and accept the Gentiles? Is that what's going on? Paul's asking these questions. He's throwing them at them. Because the weak faction feels displaced. They feel like they're on the outside in. Why? Because they felt like they were uniquely special, right? See, at the very beginning of the passage, Paul lists why they feel special. The people of Israel, uh, theirs is, this is uh, verse four. It says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Like, he lists all the stuff. He's like, they have this huge, rich history with all this cool stuff. So I'm going to stop for a minute, and I'm going to make an analogy. And it's kind of an embarrassing analogy. 
I'm gonna, I've got show and tell. Many of you know, many of you don't, that I was a Boy Scout. Growing up, I did Boy Scouts. Look at this uniform right here. I mean, can I fit in this still? Do. <laughs> Look at all these patches, right? I'm not going to go through them all. That would be dumb and nerdy. But some really, really cool stuff on here. This is my troop number, Troop 364, Clayton, California. This is my oh, Mount Diablo Council, you know. Um, this was my rank. Anybody know what that is? Eagle Scout, baby. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah? Yeah? You? Two weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you were part of the week for a little while. You know what I'm saying? All right. All right. Um, these, anybody know what this is right here? What this whole thing is? Merit badge sash. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, listen, um, there was a lot of work that went into this. Patches. Earning patches, sewing the patches on, right, Mom? Yeah. <laughs> now, listen. <laughs> we would go on trips, and um, the cool thing about our, our troop, Troop 364, right there, is uh, we didn't, like, make people wear their uniform, like, out in public all the time. But you would wear it when you went to things that were, like, competition-based, Right? So if I showed up at like what they call the camporee, and you wore, I wore this, you could see from a distance, oh, that's an Eagle Scout, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, all the awards and the things. And so people in my group, people in my Boy Scout group, we knew what these things meant, right? We knew they were pretty... Big deal, a lot of hard work, things like that. I say that, but, you know, you show up at McDonald's on the way back from a trip, and people just looked at you like you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, they're just like, what? I mean, this, you didn't wear this to get dates. <laughs> right, Ange? <laughs> The reason why I'm telling you this is there's rank and accomplishments and hard work and status and all those things right here. And I know that. But when you look at it, you're like, that looks dorky and dumb and a waste of time. Maybe. I know some of you, maybe not. I mean, you don't. Any, real quick, who wants to jump in with me? Anybody else was a Boy Scout in the room? Okay. You're Girl Scout. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Whew, let's have a little powwow afterwards. You know what I'm saying? The reason why I say that is think about this. That's something you don't understand if you weren't in it. 
kind of like the Jewish people, um, the Gentiles looked at it and go, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand the patriarchs. I don't understand the law. I don't understand how that all worked. It feels like you look better than us. It feels like you feel like you're a little bit more special than us. Paul writes this. Um, he, well, we'll get to that here in a second. I missed my notes. You can understand why they would feel like they were special. They boasted of their privilege. They, that's all they had in a, in, a, in a culture that was totally different than theirs. And Paul's about to challenge their interpretation of their own story. He wants to challenge them that God did not choose them instead of the Gentiles, but he chose them precisely for the Gentiles. This is so important. When we read Romans chapter 9 as American individuals, we miss this. And we start coming up with all these different ideas about how God's putting people in different categories. Paul is saying something different. He's talking about the Jewish peace, trying to get them to understand that their part of the story is to be a funnel not a bowl. I'll get to that here in a second. Verse 7, it says this, On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. See, they had this idea that you had to be uh, uh, ethnically DNA Jewish. And if you weren't, you better at least follow Torah and have Jesus. And the narrative they were living in was that they were part of the chosen, the special, and everyone else was not quite as special. Romans 9, so we get to the end of this, like a lot of times it's good to read the summary of what Paul's trying to say, and this is what he's trying to say. What if he, God, did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my, my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. So what is going on in this passage? Is it about the individuals being saved that they can go to heaven when they die? No. Is it about God chooses some individuals and not others and there is nothing they can do about it? No. Paul is correcting a story that a faction of the church has been living in. And reframing the story as one of God creating a new community out of both Jews and Gentiles. That the, the children of the promise are people that we would be surprised at. That God created the people, he loved the people of Israel to love. 
And he pursued the people of Israel to pursue. And the great news is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and the Lord of all people. And because of that, there's a new basis of unity and equality in the church. And so in chapters 9 through 11, Paul's talking about the weak. For a, he's talking to the weak specifically from the beginning of chapter 9 till really about 10 verses into chapter 11. Like he's all talking about the Jewish people. He's asking them questions. He's referencing the Old Testament all over the place. And then he switches gears in, in chapter 11, verse 13, and he says, now to the strong. So he's talking to the both individually. It's like your kids are fighting, and you sit them down, and you're like, I'm talking to you. Now I'm talking to you. That's what's happening in, verse, in chapters 9 through 11. But Ryan, you might be asking, what does this have to do with us? Thanks for the show and tell on your Boy Scout uniform. But what does this have to do with us? How does this have to deal with us as a church? Are you saying we have factions? I don't know, do we? <laughs> I'll be like Paul. I'll just start asking questions. <laughs> do we? Are there any that feel left out? Not included? Or maybe we should think a little bit bigger. Maybe we didn't even think about not just us, but what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus right now in our culture? The biggest question facing the early church was the Jewish followers of Jesus was how are they going to include the Gentiles? You see this all throughout the book of Acts. Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to start doing this and start doing that? And then, it was a big question. They fought about it. They wrestled about it. They wrestled with it. They didn't wrestle. Maybe they did. Maybe they did physically wrestle about it. I don't know. If you win, then we'll... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, they, they struggled. They met. They debated Paul and Peter debated. Guys, it wasn't like a clear, linear, like fill-in-the-blank thing. It was messy. And then they had to go live it out. It wasn't just a principle. It wasn't just a belief statement, sign the belief statement. It was, they had to live it. They had to actually live it out with each other, which took courage and reconciliation and forgiveness and all the things that us individualists here in America would just rather go somewhere else, right? So think about this. If you are the weak, they think they're pretty special and have enjoyed being, this, being special and being loved and being elevated. And that, that feels great until you're not special anymore. And then what do you feel? You feel like a little bit of a demotion, right? It's like you're the only child. And then your parents have another one. <laughs> 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 
and then another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then additions start to feel like subtractions, right? And then suddenly you're told you're on equal ground and you feel kind of displaced. Now let's talk about this. Let's talk about history for a second because you knew this was coming. There was a time when followers of Jesus were a mere cluster of people that lived in a huge and powerful empire and they were a minority sect. They were overlooked, put up with, pushed to the side. With the ascension of Constantine to the throne to the head of the Roman Empire in 312, the status of Christianity began to change. That was actually forever changed at that moment. He set in motion a long process that started with the legalization of Christianity in Rome. Now, it was just step one, the legalization. It was okay to be a Christian. You could not be tortured or persecuted or... Uh, killed for being a Christian. You wouldn't be dragged into the Colosseum and thrown to lions because you said Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It was legal. Then under Theodosius, the official establishment of Christianity happened. It became an established religion of Rome. That was step two. Step three in the Middle Ages, it wasn't a moment, it just became the overwhelming cultural dominant thing in the empire, in the Middle Ages. Now, that arrangement shaped the entire history and identity of Europe. And if you don't believe me, go to Europe. Cathedral after cathedral after cathedral. And then later here in North America. It took hundreds of years, of course, and it never became complete. What am I talking about? I'm talking about something called Christendom. Christendom is a word that we use to talk about the marriage of Christianity and the state. That everything, it is seamless, it works together. A guy named Charlemagne tried to finally get it all wrapped up neatly, but it was a mess. Not every person in the Middle Ages was a Christian. They weren't serious. All of them weren't serious, or, and, and not every institution was good and just. You can just read your history. It was a mess. Still, the movement was successful enough that the West became culturally Christian and would presumably remain so. So the church went from underdog to top dog. It went from catacombs, like worshiping in the catacombs, which is secret underground, like the sewers of Rome, to building cathedrals. From martyrdom, dying for your faith, what you believe, to being the center of power. Now, 
That's Christendom. And it's this idea of pride of place in society. This has been the story of Christianity in America for years. Now I'm going to rip the Band-Aid off for some of you. <laughs> this is some of the things that I, I like to do. Those days are gone. And I don't think they're coming back in my lifetime. Just reading the tea leaves, as they say. We're living in a new age, and you can talk to anybody who studies history, scholars, biblical scholars. We're living in a new age called post-Christendom. And you might mourn this, and that's okay. You can mourn it. But there's three ways, there's actually four ways to respond to this. One is you can get really angry about it. And you can fight back. (laughs) I don't know if you're catching the similarity between the weak and maybe how we feel uh, right now as American Christians, but some people are fighting back. And, and not all of it, but some of it's kind of come under the banner of Christian nationalism, which is this clenched fist version of Christianity. Uh, some people are isolating. Listen, you can move to Kansas right now, and you can delay this for like 10 years, five years. You can, it, house prices are better. You can delay it. It's, that's what I would call isolation. You can accommodate is another way of doing it. You could just say, you know what? I'm just going to mix in with culture and kind of do a little, little of Jesus and a little of this and that and just kind of mix in and accommodate. Um, but I think Romans 9 is a challenge to us. Are we accurately living out the story of the kingdom of God? And this is where we get back to this idea of funnels and not bowls. The people of Israel were given a mandate through Abraham to be a blessing. To be a blessing for all what? All nations, all people. They weren't a bowl that God showered all this goodness on and they just caught this and they're like, thank you God, we're bowls. Thanks for giving us everything. It's just for us, right? They were meant to be funnels. Where the love of God threw them to others. And that is what this passage is. This passage is reminding the people who are Jewish that there isn't, they aren't bulls. And I... I think it's a reminder for us that we're also not bulls. As a church community together, not seeking the pride of place, but the, but the kingdom. Not seeking power, but a posture of service. Not winning, but losing. Not living but dying. That is the cross. That is the way of Jesus. When we serve other people in humility, that we seek the common good of our city, 
and the people around us, all the while while renewing our allegiance to Jesus alone. That's the kind of church we want to be. And like I said, over the centuries, Romans 9 has been used to help people with a scheme, a schema, like a grid of who's in and who's now, who's out, um, and help us to order and make sense of who God is and how God works. But as I've gotten older, um, I mean, this is, this <laughs> uniform's pretty old. <laughs> as I've gotten older, my faith in God has become, and this, don't let this freak you out, less concrete and more more mysterious. Like the things that I used to just cling to and hold on to, I'm just like, ah, I know Jesus. (laughs) I'm going to trust Jesus. And as much as my mind is clamoring for certitude, guys, we love certitude. We love to be certain. It gives us comfort. It's like a warm blanket. But I just think that wonder and mystery is a part of this following Jesus. And so what does this mean for us as I finish? Here's the thing. It, it, it means being a, living as a community of peace in the middle of empire. And the goal is to set ourselves as a community in the story. And we, like this Roman house churches, we live in empire. Empire is all around us. It touches every part of our lives. It might be a little different than Rome. It might be a lot different than Rome. But Winston Churchill said the empires of the future will be ideologies. And ideologies of the mind are our new empires. So careerism, sexuality, power, status, it's all empires of the mind. And our empires try to tell us, try physique, try money, try success, try power, try winning, try, num- try numbing, try a perfect family, try career growth, try notoriety, try, try experiences. And you and I live in all of that. And we actually need each other as a community to keep our allegiance in Jesus while at the same time serving the community around us. So I have a few conversation questions for us on the screen. Um, We'll throw these up. Um, These are just things that you can use. We can throw them all up, actually. If you want to do this old school and just take a picture. Actually, old school would be writing furiously all three questions down. Um, <laughs> you could take a picture of it. But actually, the best way to do this is, is this is for your, your house church or it just even personally as you reflect. You can take a, a, you know, the QR codes around the room. Um, this will be on that as well. I want you to be thinking about this as we go because next week builds on this, okay? And then the final thing is we are a community of baptism and what it looks like to follow Jesus includes the moment of baptism. 
And baptism is a way that we die to our old self, raise, be raised to life like Jesus, and it's this invitation to be a part of the community of God. And baptism is really special. And baptism is something that you don't have to keep doing, you know. <laughs> for, for us to be a part of witnessing baptism is a reminder of our own baptism. But the invitation is to baptism. Uh, to the people within the people of God, and so if you're interested in being baptized, um, we would love to have a conversation with you. We want to schedule baptism around you. Um, we don't typically say this is baptism Sunday. Deal with it. Uh, we want to make sure that you can be a part. And so if you want to be a part of baptism, you can do the QR code thing on the Connect form. Just write your name, your information. And just say baptism, and we will get in touch with you about baptism. Okay? Let's pray together. Actually, if you can stand, will you stand with me as we pray? If you're able. Jesus, you... You work... And you move, and you heal, and you do that all through community. And I'm just actually in awe of the fact that this letter went to a small group of people in the middle of the epicenter of the most powerful nation in history. And they listened, obeyed, reconciled, figured it out. It was messy. It had to have been. But your message spread. And in just a few hundred years became known throughout the empire. And God, we recognize that we're, we're human and we do weird human things and we use power and we use privilege and we use all these things over each other. And we recognize that the history of this faith has been a mixed bag. But we're standing here today and in some way or another reordering our hearts around allegiance to Jesus. At this moment in history, at this moment in culture, at this moment in our personal lives, God, would you uh, meet us, heal us, challenge us, shake us, forgive us, give us the strength and the faith to do courageous things, whether they be in hospitality or in generosity or in love or would you show us what it looks like to be your people together. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to read to you at the end of chapter 11 as our benediction. 
Paul writes to both the weak and the strong, and at the end he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.